Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodgen, joined by our resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how you doing? Doing good. We're getting into, uh, or we're in pretty good golf weather right now, so that always makes me happy. The, the wind is chilling out, and I have, I have on the schedule... Uh, a we a little short weekend trip into Guthrie to go play the course there with uh, with uh, family members and stuff. So it's nice. I, w- I was just sent an article. My wife sent me an article today that in 50 years this has been the windiest uh, April in Oklahoma's history, which makes sense. Well, it ha- it's just been unreal. It, it hasn't been much better down in Texas, but with all the storms that have passed through both that makes sense i will so tomorrow from when we were recording today from when this comes out i will be on the golf course okay so nice very good as you're listening Uh, to this we got in our shelter by the way that's good (laughs) yeah we had to get in a shelter once sirens went off nothing materialized but we saw the little uh, we saw the little finger from one of the clouds, kind of at the back end. That might that might turn into something. Turns out it was probably like ten miles away or so. But we saw the helicopter circling it as we were looking at our phone and going, "That's the helicopter we're seeing right now in the sky." We had <laughs> it was great two tornado like things. I say tornado like because potential they, they storms weren't like or... tornado tornado on the ground, but uh, you know one step back from that with circulations and, drop and very stuff, very yeah. high winds, and so you get you know some similar type of damage. But uh, we had two that went right through downtown Tyler, which like never happens. I don't think it's ever yeah, happened. No. In my 26 years of life, through downtown Tyler, it's normally north of Tyler. Sometimes you get one every once in a while that will go south. That's still rare, but that does happen. But yeah. never, like right through the middle, you generally don't get much. We've had two over the last month. Yeah, I had like we had like one warning when I was there almost 10 years ago now. And that was it. <laughs> as far as that goes in in Tyler so i it's crazy yeah the the creation's got creation's got problems creation's got problems which is uh, eventually what put we're a, going to yeah put a bookmark there yeah or <laughs> or something because uh, paul has some things to say about that yes he does yes he does before we get to paul though we're uh, we're dealing with jesus right now uh last week we talked about new creation we've uh, we've been on this series. I want to say that was lesson number three. We had an overview, and then we looked at uh, Old Testament, which was primarily Isaiah. But in our overview, uh, of course, we touched uh, into Genesis, and Genesis will be back around when we tie things up. Uh, but we looked at the Old Testament uh, a couple episodes ago. Last episode, we moved into the Synoptic Gospels, leaving John and his all of his writing. Uh, for another time, but we'll talk about those as well. Uh, But we talked about new creation in the Synoptic Gospels. 
uh, and uh, defined our heaven and earth terms and then introduced a little bit Jesus uh, in those synoptic gospels with the intention today of talking about uh, Jesus and his life and his worldview, his mission, all of these things as it relates to uh, new heavens and new earth. So uh, we'll get into that here in just a moment. But as always, I want to remind you of a couple things. Uh, if you have comments, criticisms, questions, suggestions for episodes that you would like us to cover, topics you'd like us to discuss, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. Get a hold of either of us on Facebook or on our Thinking Theologically Facebook page. You can message us there, uh, and either Spencer or I will uh, get that message and respond. And you can go to Spencer on Twitter still if you are. Please do. Maybe you're returning to Twitter because Elon Musk bought it now, and you feel like you want to be I'm there. I'm still there. <laughs> Spencer's still there, still got his followers. Uh, we'll see if he gets banned. So we'll have a we'll have a Twitter watch for Spencer, and uh, see what happens. I don't know. I don't know how people feel about all of that. I'm not trying to alienate any of our listeners. I have no feelings on it whatsoever. I'm still not on Twitter, and I don't plan to be. Uh, uh, that was thing number one. Thing number two is don't forget about thinkingtheologically.org, where we have not just these podcasts, but also written stuff. Uh, and if you don't like reading those things, then we also have audio of the written stuff. So we're just, we have all sorts of things. We have all sorts of things. I'm even writing again now, though we haven't posted that article yet, but I came out of my, uh, like one and a half year retirement from writing and because of this website. So you got listening go. to the, uh, articles and stuff. It, they're pretty short. Yeah, so like four it's, minutes. It's most. it's a quick so. listen on your way to work or something like that. It's nothing too long, so you get kind of a balance of more in depth discussion here on the podcast, a little lighter, shorter, quick thoughts that you can yeah, even listen to if you don't like reading. Like a you quick said, quick little uh, something to think about for the rest of your day. You know, as you uh, as you go, just a little four minutes, and then boom, you're on your way thinking about all sorts of other stuff. That's what we like to do here. That's what we, we like to encourage here, and that's part of why we do this. Today, our uh, our thought uh, that we're going to be pushing on is building off of the Synoptic Gospels, as we said, and focusing instead now very specifically on, on Jesus and why he did the things that he did, why he presented things the way that he did. Uh, and where we see this new creation language in, well, this yeah, new creation in various parts of Jesus's life uh, and all that he's doing. Spencer talked about in our last episode uh, that Jesus had an apocalyptic worldview, uh, and to summarize those thoughts, it's a view that in the world there's a battle going on between forces of evil and good, uh, or forces of Satan and God. Jesus, as leader of the kingdom of God, has come into the world to battle the forces of evil. Jesus and the kingdom ultimately win uh, at the cross through the resurrection. Now the world waits for the complete victory, the fullness of the kingdom of God when Jesus returns and the kingdom is fully realized. Uh, and I think I think a lot of us either are, are fully there with that idea 
uh, or at least mostly there with that idea without maybe understanding the full implications of that. And I think you'd agree to that, Spencer. I think most Christians that we've interacted with are like, yeah, there's good and evil going on and Jesus wins and you know, you know, re- read the end of the book, we win, you know, go to Revelation, all that stuff. Yes, but there's also this, what does the fully realized look like? And that's where, that's where a lot of Christians go, I, I don't know, it's just going to be awesome. And we agree that it's going to be awesome, but we also think that we see throughout Scripture, uh, all of these references and this terminology and this very intentional language of what this thing is going to be like uh, at the end. And that's true in Jesus's language too. Uh, So we're going to focus in on him today. Spencer, do you have anything to add to that or do you want to just jump right into uh, the mission of Jesus? I'll just say I I agree with what you said about the way uh, many Christians think about the kingdom of God. I would say that most Christians probably have what I would call an anemic view of the kingdom. Uh, it's it's there. Its basic parts are there, but it's a little sickly. Um, it, you know, you you when you think of the battle that's going on, I mean, uh, Paul is a little bit more upfront with that. We think of like Ephesians. Uh, your that our battles not against flesh and blood but against these principalities yeah, yeah. powers and authorities that moves them into talking about the armor of god and so, so a lot of times that's where we want to stop it well yeah there's this battle that's going on yes we win revelation is another example of hey god's ultimately going to win the victory uh but our conclusions only go so far as okay so follow god and we kind of stop there and there's Many, many more implications going all the way back to how we understand what Jesus did and said, which is where we're going, to how we live now, the mission of the church, what the fullness of that kingdom is going to look like, i.e. heaven, afterlife, the conclusion to God's story, that kind of language that we've been using. Uh, there's a lot more than, well, God's going to win, so follow God. It's not a bad place to start. But like I said, it yeah, you could. Yeah. I would say yeah. it's a little sickly. It could be, you know, we could give it a little bit of nutrition and build it up a little bit. Take it to the gym a couple times, work it out, um, and get something a little sturdier, um, which is what we're trying to do. Um, and before we get into the mission of Jesus, I'll also say as we talk about the Jesus in the synoptics, what we'll do in this episode is very general kind of hitting a lot of the highlights because you know you could stay you could probably we could probably stay in just one gospel for the rest of our lives talking about these kinds of things which we're not going to do so we'll kind of hit the highlights especially hitting a lot of the things that are more overt more out front because there's a lot of things that connect to the kingdom to heaven to afterlife to new creation in the ministry of Jesus that kind of sit below yeah. the surface that aren't verbatim and out front for us. I think of things like Jesus being presented in the Gospels as the new Adam, which is more explicit in Paul, but you get it in the Gospels. Paul didn't just make it up. He's getting it right. from the tradition that was handed down to him of the the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus. 
as well as his understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, but that kind of sits below the surface, I think, of even stuff, uh, New Exodus, Moses, those kind of motifs that sit below the surface of the Synoptic Gospels. Yeah, um, yeah. Jesus as the embodiment of the temple. We'll mention that a little bit. Can't go into that much in depth, but that kind of sits below the surface of the Gospels. Um, so just because of time, not going to be able to develop all of those things. But there's plenty of things that are kind of out front a little bit more obvious um, kind of sitting on the top that we can kind of hit and get the picture of how Jesus acted and talked as it connects to these themes of Genesis, Isaiah, new creation, heaven, the story of God and so on and so forth. Uh, But yeah, going back to what you said about contacting us, if there's something that we missed or a passage that you would like to hear more about or have us discuss or want to know how it relates to this or whatever it may be, feel free to send those to us. Uh, Yeah, we can always write about that and do some of the additional content on uh, part of what I'm part of the thing that I'm writing on has to do with model prayer, which we'll touch on today, but also uh, some of that Exodus idea. Uh, and connection there with Jesus. So we will get a little bit more of that there. Um, but I, I think what you're saying is a very good thing for people to understand. Uh, what we're doing is trying to follow a thread that will hopefully form a good base for anybody listening to these things to work on. We're not we're not trying to think theologically for you. We're trying to uh, encourage it uh, in you. So by showing a foundation of you know, look, here are these pieces and things, this common thread and how these things fit together kind of gives you the opportunity to go, okay, I know what we're working with here. And, you know, gee, this thing sounds awfully familiar. I wonder if that connects to and, uh, you know, ask us about it, write those things down, pursue that question of does does that also fit into these sorts of things and and all of that. Uh, Just consider this a base uh, to to work off of, because like Spencer said, having to hit the highlights, because this is already, I think we already have 13 episodes or something on this. So <laughs> we, we, can't we can't do everything. Uh, yeah, we'll have to talk about other stuff at some point. Um, but today we're here to talk about this. So uh, Spencer, why don't you get us into uh, in talking about uh, Jesus's apocalyptic worldview and uh, how he uses uh, new creation language and all this. Uh, why don't you start us off here with his mission, uh, us seeing new creation in the things that he he did? Yeah. So uh, you know, when when you think about the the mission of Jesus, what what was the what was the point of Jesus coming? What was the purpose of God becoming human? Of Jesus going to the cross? Of him rising from the dead, why Why did all of that happen? Why did it all need to happen, right? What's the, what's the yeah. pur- purpose? What, what was Jesus trying to do? And I think for most Christians, if you ask them that question, our first response is, well, something along the lines of Jesus came to save me from my sins or Jesus took my place, um, took the punishment of sin upon himself, something along those lines, which would be a correct statement, but I think it's an incomplete 
One, I think that Agreed. the yeah. what Jesus came to do, Jesus' mission, is much bigger than just to save you and I from the individual times where we miss the mark, which is how we tend to define sin, which is part of it. Yeah. But even sin is, I think, bigger than that. Uh, that connects back. We've we've done episodes on why Jesus needed to become a human being. We've done episode an episode on what happened at the cross where we looked at atonement theories. And so I would recommend if you haven't listened to those to go and listen to those because those connect very well with what we're talking yep. about. And when we looked at atonement theories, for example, we talked about substitution and things like that, but how maybe the, the best big picture atonement theory, there was a lot of things that happened at, a, at the cross a lot of things that Jesus' mission does. Uh, and so there's a lot of different ways to look at it. But m- maybe the best overarching way to think about it that fits everything in it, we said was Christus Victor. The idea that Jesus and the kingdom of God claimed victory over the powers of sin and evil in the world, which connects to that apocalyptic worldview that Jesus had and that Jesus taught through, that there's this battle between good and evil, between Satan and God going on in the world. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, defeats those powers. The kingdom of God wins the victory, wins the battle, wins the war against the powers of sin and evil in the world. And so defeating those powers, again, is bigger than just you and I as individuals missing the mark. That That's part of it. But the reason that you and I sin and miss the mark is because sin has a power, a control over us. It's enslaved us. Paul particularly likes that language of us being slaves to sin. And so what Jesus does is not only, well, now you and I can be forgiven for the times when we do sin, but Jesus also broke those bonds broke those chains of sin that held us captive, set us free from the powers of sin, not only in our own life, but when we do sin, we contribute to sin cosmically in the world that causes things in the world. We've talked about this in other episodes that can't be traced back to just one person making a mistake. Um, I think of uh, issues of of justice are an example, racism, things like that, uh, worldwide poverty, uh, illness, disease, problems even in the, the creation. We were talking about storms, things like that. Uh, you can't trace that back to one person making a mistake. Yes, we as human beings contribute in ways to those when we make mistakes, but there's something bigger going on. Sin is working in a bigger way in the world And so when we think about Jesus as claiming victory over, it's not just victory us as individuals, but it's also this big picture victory, breaking, uh, freeing us from our slavery to sin, dealing with the bigger cosmic issues and results of sin that exist in the world that are bigger than just you and I. And so that's what Jesus came to do, kind of that big picture idea of dealing with sin. And you see that in the way that Jesus is presented in the Synoptic Gospels. A prime example of that is the miracles of Jesus, right? Why are the miracles of Jesus 
significant. Well, or why did Jesus perform miracles? Well, you know, part of it is that Jesus cares about people. We see in the Synoptic Gospels times when we're just told that Jesus has compassion or pity on someone and so heals them, right? Of, of course, Jesus loves people, so he does that. Um, Jesus' miracles also for the people in, in his day would be some verification of his teachings, what he's teaching, what he's claiming is true. Just look at the things that I'm able to do. Um, someone else wouldn't be able to do that. I think of when the Pharisees said that Jesus uh, casting out or was casting out demons by the prince of demons, and Jesus' response is that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. The idea there is, yeah. well, the fact that I'm casting out demons makes sense that I'm working for God, that, that I am who I claim to be. So you have some of that going on, but we also have to ask, why are miracles so important in the gospel's presentation of Jesus? We get so many miracle stories in the synoptic gospels, more than we would need if the point is just, well, Jesus loves people, right? The, the cross is enough to make that point, I think. You don't need all the miracle stories if that's the only point you're trying to make. Sure. Jesus demonstrating he is who he says he is. Yeah, maybe we need some of those stories, but us looking back on it, that's not as important because we're not seeing Jesus do that. Again, the empty tomb is probably enough, right? Especially for the audience that they're writing to. It's, well, go look. There's no body in the tomb. Uh, we have these witnesses that actually interacted with Jesus after he died. That's pretty compelling evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, even more so than miracles. There were plenty of people who could perform miracles. Nobody else rises from the dead. Um, yeah. So I would argue that those two things are going on in the Gospels, but they're not the primary reason we see miracle stories in the Synoptic Gospels. I would argue that the primary reason we have miracle stories in the Synoptic Gospels is to show this mission of Jesus to conquer the powers of sin in the world, this apocalyptic worldview that the, the kingdom of God has come in Jesus and it's more powerful and is able to defeat the kingdom of evil that currently controls the world, right? What's one of the results of evil and sin? Disease. So when Jesus is able to go and clear, and, uh, clear people of their diseases, what does that demonstrate? It demonstrates the power of the kingdom of God over the powers of evil. The obvious yeah. example of that is demons. Why do we get so many demon stories? The point of the demon stories that is all about this apocalyptic worldview, 100%. That's the reason we have the stories of Jesus casting out demons, because demons are literally evil. I mean, it, it's the embodiment of evil. That's what the demons are. They're workers, they're soldiers, if you will, in the kingdom of sin. And Jesus' ability to cast them out, the fact that they have to do what Jesus says, shows the power of Jesus over the kingdom of evil and how the kingdom of God coming into the world not only deals with the sins that you and I commit, 
but it deals with these results of sin that can be seen in things like illness, like birth defects, and most poignantly, demons possessing people. And so we see the power of Jesus, the power of the kingdom. That's why Jesus describes his ministry in the way that he does in places such as Luke chapter 4. In Luke 4 verses 18 and 19, Jesus is beginning his ministry. He's been baptized. He's been tempted by Satan out in the wilderness. He's now ready to embark on his mission, to embark on his ministry. He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, goes into the synagogue, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and reads this passage from Isaiah. Uh, He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this quotation of Jesus of Isaiah is meant in Luke's gospel to stand kind of as Jesus' job or ministry description, to kind of say, hey, this is what I'm about to go and do. Luke's saying, I'm about to write to you about what Jesus actually did, and it's all living out this description. And we can be tempted to, when we read this, sometimes to try and spiritualize it. Well, and we can do some of that when we think of some of the, what we would say, spiritual things that Jesus did. Uh, Yeah, you could describe that as release from captivity, uh, receiving sight. You can think about that in a spiritual way. But it's interesting if you read through Luke's gospel, Luke goes on to show how Jesus literally on the ground in real physical life did these things. How Jesus actually gave good news to those who are literally poor. How he released people who were literally captives to things such as demons. How he actually gave sight to people who were blind. And the conclusion of that is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is Jubilee language. Uh, The year of Jubilee came about every 70 years, or at least was supposed to. It's interesting. We have no actual record in the Old Testament of Israel ever actually observing the year of Jubilee. They were supposed to. Mm. We have that, but we don't have an example of them actually doing it. But the idea was every 70 years, all debt was forgiven. All slaves were set free. Everything like reverted back to the way that it was, the way it was supposed to be. That's new creation type things. What What's the conclusion of God's story? It's to revert things back to the beginning, to the way they were supposed to be. And the year of Jubilee in Israel was just a mini representation of what God was doing. Everybody being set free, debts forgiven, everything going back to the way that it was at the beginning, the way it was supposed to be. And Jesus is saying, that's what I've come to do, to bring everything back to the way it was supposed to be by good news to the poor, release of the captive, sight to the blind. And Luke shows us how Jesus actually does that on the ground in the lives of real people. And if you skip forward to Acts, we actually see the local church do every single one of those things on the ground in the physical world as well. And from that perspective of the church continuing that mission and work of Jesus on the ground in real people's lives is why, for example, you have 
Jesus discussion of judgment in the way that it is in places such as Matthew 25, 31 through 46, we get the, uh, what is a lot of times called uh, the sheep and goat judgment. And yeah. Jesus says uh, that the king will say to those at his right hand, come you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's again, a reference back to Genesis. Um, but Jesus says that those who will get to inherit the kingdom that's been prepared since the foundation of the world are those, uh, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then Jesus goes on and says, when you did this to the least of these, uh, you did it to me. It's interesting that in the sheep and goat judgment, the basis of our judgment, the basis of who gets to enter into the kingdom, it, Jesus says nothing about faith, about belief, about going to church or reading your Bible, as important as all those things are. Jesus says nothing about it. He talks about how you treated real people in real life in a physical way, like Jesus did. In his ministry, uh, how did right. you interact with with people in the real world? He says that is characteristic of the kingdom. Those who do these things are the ones that are going to get enter into the kingdom. And so you kind of bring that together, and you see that the mission of Jesus is bigger than just the spiritual idea of saving you from your sins, but how sin is bigger. It does these things in the real physical world. And Jesus came to defeat and conquer sin totally, not just uh, in you and I individually, but in the entire cosmos, all the results of sins. That's why Jesus performs miracles. That's why Jesus describes his mission in the way that he does. And that's why Jesus calls the church to continue that mission in the real world, in the real lives of people, because there's a physical manifestation, not only of evil, but also of the kingdom. And that goes back to our job as the church is to be a part of the story of God. And if the story of God is creation, a new creation, if the conclusion is a return to the beginning, our job is to live in that. In other words, it's to bring as much of heaven to earth as we can, which is what Jesus did, which is what he tells his followers to do. And so it's not Again, the spiritual pie in the sky thing, but there's a physical manifestation, a real world part of the kingdom. Yes, you and I are forgiven of our sins, but it's the mission of Jesus is much, much bigger than that. Therefore, the story of God is much, much bigger than that. Therefore, our work as the yeah. church is much, much bigger than that. And there's so much more that could be said on that, but I'm going to stop talking yeah quite a bit quite a bit more but uh we do have other things <laughs> that we need to say in in different uh in different uh areas of jesus's life here but yeah no you're you're absolutely right um it's it's been said uh by um others that i have read uh over the last year or so you know we tend to think of jesus is fixing uh, the genesis 3 thing because the fall is what is wrong and so we've got to fix 
the fall. Uh, but then uh, this particular author said, well, it's not just the fall. It's also uh, some of these spiritual things. And he took that to uh, Genesis 6. Uh, but then also some of this uh, lack of mission-mindedness and uh, elevation of self and all of that that happens at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Uh, and so he would say the the idea about the Messiah is that you would fix all of those things. And we see Jesus doing that. Uh, we, we see the prophets look forward to that. Uh, you know, Isaiah being a being the prophet that gets quoted so often uh, throughout the Gospels. Um, we see the prophets hoping for this coming individual that will right those wrongs. And then we see Jesus doing all of those things. And then, as you said, the church uh, in following Jesus also doing those things very directly uh, in interaction with the, with the creation, trying to set these, trying to set everything right, not just sin, but as much as you possibly can. Um, I think those are good examples. And we see, we see that progression from how things were, the mistakes that followed and the fallout from all of that. And then the expectation that this, this Jesus figure is going to come and save us, not just from our sins, but from the consequences of those sins and to bring something better for us out of all of that. Uh, we see that not only in his mission, uh, but we also see this in uh, some of the language of Jesus here. You know, it's funny because you'll, you'll say this too. We have a ton of examples we could use here. We have two, and we don't get out of the Sermon on the Mount <laughs> in order to use these. Uh, but from that first, you know, get-go that we have in Matthew's Gospel, here's Jesus giving this lesson, and we have uh, in that chunk at the early part of his ministry, as far as Matthew's Gospel is concerned, uh, you know, here's here's new creation stuff. So, uh, Spencer, those those two examples we have, where, where do we see Jesus's uh, Jesus use this new creation language? Yeah, so uh, kind of like you said, we you know when you think about the mission of Jesus, you see connections to this bigger story, this new creation uh, idea, this this return to Genesis. But he he does, and like you said, we could use a ton of examples say this much more explicitly than just kind of trying to piece this together to understand Jesus' mission. And the, the Sermon on the Mount's the per perfect place to go because what Matthew is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is the Sermon on the Mount is supposed to be kind of a reenactment of the book of Deuteronomy. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the new Moses who's bringing about a new exodus. That's why Matthew tells us that Jesus fled to Egypt. Who else went to Egypt? Yeah. Uh, Moses did. Yeah. Uh, so, and this idea of new exodus is freedom from, that Jesus is bringing is freedom from slavery to sin. There's the bigger picture of sin and evil in the world. It's bigger than just you and I making mistakes. We are slaves to sin. And Jesus is bringing about a new exodus. He's leading us out to a new promised land. There's the conclusion of God's story, heaven, the kingdom of God. And then when Moses does that, you have this long sermon in Deuteronomy of, well, this is what it looks like to live as the people of God. God has done this for you. He's made you his people. Now, here's how you live. That's kind of what Jesus is doing. Here's what the kingdom looks yeah. like. 
Here's what it looks like to live as the people of God. God's done these things for you. Uh, Here's how you live as a part of that. And it opens up, the Sermon on the Mount does, with the Beatitudes, which are kind of these upside-down kingdom descriptors. It's kind of the idea of those that are looked down in the kingdom of the world, which is really the kingdom of sin, are those who are looked up to in the kingdom of God, the kingdom that's going to win the victory. Uh, And one of the descriptions, well, first off, um, the Beatitudes uh, inform what's form what's called an inclusio, that they begin and end the same way, which is meant to impact the way we read everything in between. So it begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It ends with, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven begins and ends. And the idea is that everything in between is meant to describe, in some way, the kingdom of heaven. So everything is kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God language. We've talked about yeah. that king, the meaning of uh, kingdom of heaven in the last episode. Um, and there in the middle, we have the statement, blessed are the meek in verse five, for they will inherit the earth. Remember, inherit the earth where it connects in some way to the kingdom of heaven. That's what everything is meant to be referring to. What is the kingdom of heaven like? Well, it's like the earth, apparently, because those who are meek will inherit the earth, which is in essence supposed to function like a synonym to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I've seen a lot of explanations about things that this could mean. And just in my opinion, the only one that makes sense is if the kingdom of heaven is on earth or recreated earth or or however you want to do that. But again, you get this obvious idea of, well, it's a return back to the beginning. It's a return back to the way that the earth was supposed to be. It's heaven and earth becoming one again. Going back to our last episode, God and us dwelling in the same place again. It's making everything in the world, that bigger picture of sin, making all of that right. Those who are meek, Jesus said, will get to inherit the earth. They will get to be a part yeah. of the new heavens and the new earth because that is what the kingdom is going to be. And that seems to make the most sense of what Jesus is saying because I don't know what other earth they would inherit. It's not this earth. That's kind of, about, nor would I want to inherit this earth. It's pretty broken. Uh, yeah. As Isaiah said, I look forward to new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where things are made right once again. Yeah, and you you might say, uh, you might be thinking if you're listening to this, you know, okay, but uh, maybe there's other options. You know, I get he said inclusio, maybe you've heard it. The, The term that I've used is just, yeah, we got bookends here, right? We've got the same phrase at this part and this part. I mean, that's so not a, as fancy between, way to right? say it, but I guess bookends right. <laughs> Book work. Ends. So the stuff in between, fit. but you, you might be going, okay, but maybe there's some other explanation for that. You know, you stretch, whatever, and that, and that sort of thing. But that's why we have the second example of, um, of Jesus's model prayer that he gives, which I think gives a really good indication of exactly what you're talking about here, Spencer. Spencer, you want to 
Uh, you want to go into the model prayer and kind of lay that language out for us, what we see there? Yeah, so most of us are familiar with, probably with the model prayer of Jesus, Matthew 6, uh, 9 uh, through maybe 15. We won't get into textual criticism of what's going on here, but... Uh, there's a question for you. <laughs> you've, you've got, well, I, if you read the Beatitudes, and I've mentioned that in Clusio, you'll also notice that I didn't include the last Beatitude air quotes because it's not one. But, uh, there's, there's another question you can ask of what's going Great. on. Take all that to Twitter, everybody. In the Beatitudes. I'll be happy <laughs> to explain to you what's going on here in the Sermon on the Mount. But that's not important. Jesus gives us this model prayer. And in verse, yeah, he tells us, he tells his disciples, his followers, this is how you are to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's mm. very interesting. Yep. Um, he says that we are to pray for the kingdom of God to come. You know, historically in the Church of Christ, some have said, well, we can't pray this prayer because the kingdom's already come, because the church is here. Yeah, the church is here. Uh, the church is yeah. not the kingdom. The church is a part of the kingdom. That, that's what I like to say. The, the kingdom of God speaks of the complete and total rule and reign of God. And we as the church are a part of the rule and the reign of God. But until... God's rule and reign is complete and total in the world. That is, there is no more sin or problems or brokenness. We still await the fullness of the kingdom. It's that now but not yet aspect of the kingdom. Yes, God's already won the victory yeah. at the cross and through the resurrection. But the fullness of that victory, the fullness of the kingdom has yet to come. We as Christians are a part of what's to come, but what's to come has yet to be fully realized we have yet to fully experience that and so jesus says as christians we need to be praying for the kingdom for the fullness for the conclusion of god's story for heaven if you will and then he says we pray your kingdom come your will be done those are very similar to what you see a lot of the times in like the psalms or proverbs or things like that these ideas parallel each other they're saying the same thing just using different words, right? Because again, when God's will is fully done, what does that mean? No more sin, no more brokenness. That is the fullness of the kingdom. So to pray your kingdom come, your will be done is in essence the same thing, just said slightly different, looked at from a slightly different angle. And the will that we want done is the will of God in heaven to be done on earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That takes us back to how we defined heaven and earth in the last episode. Heaven is the place where God is. Yeah. Earth is the place where we are. They overlap. So you see glimpses of what is to come. You see glimpses of the way things were before sin. The, that fullness of the kingdom. Uh, but again, it's, it's not yet. We get glimpses of it, but not fully. And so what is our prayer for the fullness of the kingdom, for God's full will to be done? In other words, that's for heaven and earth to become the same place once again, for God and human beings to dwell in the same place, for things to be made right once again, for the way things are in heaven, for where God is to come to earth and be the way that things are on earth. 
which is the way things were at the beginning. Remember, we talked about the very beginning, Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Heaven and earth, the place where God is and the place that we are, were the same at one point. The problem is sin has separated us from God. And our prayer is for the fullness of the kingdom, the fullness of God's will to come where heaven and earth are once again, where the things where God is now characterize the place where we are. And where we are is also the place where God is here on earth as it is in heaven, which connects to ideas that we're going to see when we get to like John of uh, uh, the new Jerusalem coming down to earth language like that of God's place, God's will, God's kingdom coming to us and us being a part of it, the earth being transformed to the way that it was at the beginning. That's what Jesus says we should be praying for, because that's the end of God's story. That's what we're looking forward to. That's where our hope is set, is in that happening. As Isaiah said, new heavens and a new earth. Yeah, and and we'll continue to build on that language as we go uh, and look at these various places. But, um, you know, there's, as it's traditionally taught right now and for a while, but not always, but that's that's actually not an episode we have on the docket. Perhaps that'll be something that we write about Um uh, but uh, as it's been traditionally taught for a while, there is this, okay, the, the church is the kingdom and we need to get as many people into it so that when those people die or when Jesus comes back before all of that, then they can go to this place that's set up and taken care of and all of this. So our only purpose is to make sure people get into a saved position. Um, but what we're advocating for and what we believe Jesus was doing and the early church was doing and the prophets were looking forward to was not just getting people into a saved position, but as we saw with the Matthew 25 sheep and goats thing of, okay, you're in this saved position in this part of the kingdom, but that kingdom has to be going out and doing things in order to bring everything back to where it's supposed to be. So now all of a sudden the the mission, and I know we have an article on this coming up, but all of a sudden the mission changes of, it's not just about, we got to get people, uh, we got to get people baptized, we got to get people saved, and then we got to move on and get more people. It's those people need to grow and start taking on, uh, taking this message out and ministering to people and helping people because God is interested in getting all of this stuff merged back together because it started that way and then it broke apart. God's interested in bringing it back together, not evacuating here to go to some place that's not ready yet uh, for us, evidently. But that's, I may have said too much. I may have opened, I may have opened some other things. That's fine. Oh man, we're going long, we're going long on this one, but that's okay. You and I are both kind of I'm getting a little ranty in some spots. Oh, there's just so much going <laughs> we're, on, we're and it's always dangerous when you get me in the Gospels, uh, because yeah. there's so much going on under the surface that's, to me, amazing and probably boring to everybody else. But that's fun. Well, if you're listening to this, they, they're they're probably they're probably interested. Let's keep you in the Gospels, but shift you a little bit in focus here of Jesus's use of the Old Testament and the images that we have in the Old Testament that point to uh, new creation. 
that Jesus incorporates, that he brings back into uh, our, uh, our thoughts uh, as we go through the Gospels. Where do you want to start there, Spencer? Yeah, so we, we talked about in the last couple episodes, when we were looking in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, and the language that Isaiah and the Old Testament as a whole uses to talk about the conclusion of God's story, what we would call heaven, how the New Testament authors, and this includes Jesus, pick up and utilize that same imagery. So the same imagery, the same theme of a return to the beginning of new heavens and a new earth, that imagery is picked up by the writers and speakers of the New Testament. And Jesus is as an example of this. And so I just have a a few examples that we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on, but just to show how Jesus takes that imagery that's connected to new heavens and new earth and new creation and is using it in what he says. And his audience would have known that. That's important. Who he's talking to are Jews who know the Old Testament. And so when they hear this language, they go back to Isaiah 65 and 66. They go back to Ezekiel or back to the Psalms or back to Genesis. I mean, it's for us today, maybe for some of us, it seems like a stretch to make that connection, but it's honestly because we aren't as enthroned into the language of the old Testament as Jesus audience would have been. Um, Yeah. It's, we're not trying to forge our own connections. We're trying to understand the connections that they would have forged as first listeners to all of this stuff. And that's what all of these Bible students are attempting to do is not what passages can we throw in that sound kind of like this, but what would they have actually been thinking when they heard this? Because that's the Bible is meant to be cohesive uh, in act and reenactment, as you mentioned just a moment ago. We're trying to understand those sorts of things and didn't mean to pause you there. No, no, that... Uh, lack of education on the old testament but you're you're right about that they they didn't have that they knew it they knew it backwards and forwards they just they just didn't get some things but that's what jesus helps solve for them. i like the way there's a scholar at duke university uh he's a gospel historical jesus expert named mark goodacre um and when he talks about the Old Testament language and prophecies and stuff uh, in the New Testament. Um, some people have claimed that what New Testament authors and maybe even Jesus himself was doing was um, uh, going back and finding things in the Old Testament, prophecies and statements and stuff like that. And then changing the way that they told history to fit that. Some people have claimed that. I like what Mark Goodacre says. Uh, He calls what the gospel writers are doing um, history scripturalized. And his argument is that the gospel writers were so entrenched in the Old Testament and Old Testament imagery, they couldn't help but telling the story of Jesus with the same imagery. It wasn't, they didn't fit their telling of history to the Old Testament. They were just so thrown in the Old Testament, which Jesus is the fulfillment of, that there's no other way but to tell it in a way that connects back 
to the Old Testament. Uh, to me, that's just an example of how it would have been easy for them to see these connections because they, as I, th I think he's right, sometimes I think the New Testament authors do that without even realizing they're doing it. Uh, telling the story of Jesus with language that you find in the Old Testament because not only of the way that they overlap and not just because Jesus is the fulfillment of it, but because they just know it so well. It's the only way for them to do it. Um, yeah. And so one example, um, Mark 13, Matthew 24, we have discussions of the destruction of the temple. Um, and what's interesting, I wish we could spend more time on this, but... Go listen. I listened to a lecture um, by N.T. Wright that's several years old, but they just posted on uh, his podcast, Ask N.T. Wright Anything. Go listen to it. Uh, he did a lecture, um, and one of the things that he delved into was Jesus. In the way that Jesus talked and the things that Jesus did, how Jesus understood himself as uh, in essence, the incarnation of the temple, that Jesus was the temple, the temple being an overlap of heaven and earth. And that's what we have in Jesus is an overlap of, of heaven and earth. And so that idea kind of sits behind Jesus' dis discussion of the destruction of the temple. Sometimes we want to just limit that. Well, it's the destruction of Judaism or the law. or That's not really what's going on. It's more of a destruction of our limitations to connect to God. That's why the temple uh, veil was torn when Jesus died, opening up access to God in Jesus, who is the temple. He is the overlap of heaven and earth because he's God in human form. He's God on earth. All of that sits behind Jesus' discussion and the language that he uses to talk about the destruction of the temple. And when he talks about the destruction of the temple, he lists these things that are going to happen. Uh, kingdom will be against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, yada, 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 yada. And he says, this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. The beginning of the, yeah, the pains yeah. of childbirth. This is going to give birth to something new. Uh, Isaiah said the same thing, did he not? That Paul will. He, he used this birthing <laughs> metaphor to talk about the work of God giving birth to a new creation, giving birth to yeah. new heavens and new earth. And again, when we understand Jesus as the temple that sits behind this destruction that he's talking about, we can see, oh, what God is doing, not just in the destruction of the temple, but in Jesus as the new temple, a new access to God, something new happening in Jesus. This is giving birth to something completely new. And that completely new thing is Isaiah 65 and 66, uh, new heavens and a new earth, as Jesus uses uh, that same kind of language. You can actually skip down later on uh, in Mark 13. Uh, you have a parallel in Luke 21 uh, where Jesus talks about the coming of the, the Son of Man. You have similar statement. Yeah. He says there will be suffering. The sun will be darkened. The moon won't give its light, so on and so forth. Uh, and then he says, yeah. then they will see the coming of, uh, then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. 
How did Matthew, Matthew, how did Isaiah uh, 66 end? New heavens and a new earth, giving birth to something new, where God gathers all people and nations and tongues from the ends of the earth and brings them together. This is the same language that Jesus is using here of the coming of the Son of Man. He's talking about his second coming, the coming of the fullness of the kingdom, just like Isaiah was. And he says, at that time, people from the ends of the earth, even the ends of heaven, Jesus said, are all going to be brought together. And again, you have that heaven and earth language, heaven and earth becoming one as people are gathered together. But again, that language is primarily, I think, meant to bring us back to passages such as Isaiah 65 and 66, where the description of the fullness of the kingdom of God, of the end of God's story, includes this idea of bringing all people together, all nations, tribes, tongues, all of that. Uh, you, you will see that in Revelation, the coming together of, of all nations. Uh, Jesus is using that kind of language here. Um, and the last one that I'll uh, mention uh, real briefly uh, is uh, when Jesus talks about the, the coming of the kingdom, Last episode, we talked about what Jesus means by the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and how that language is used. Uh, in Luke 17, when he talks about the coming of the kingdom, uh, he talks about how he compares it to Noah and the flood. Hold on to that because yep. we'll see that in uh, particularly in Peter. Won't say any more to that. Mm -hmm. What I want to focus on, he talks about Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, being consumed by fire, so on and so forth. Um, yeah. Again, where is that taking us back to? Again, places like Isaiah 65 and 66, because we talked about how, well, we saw in Isaiah 66, and we talked about how in the Old Testament in general, the idea of judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah is an example, is connected with fire. And that's, the language that Isaiah uses, that's the language that Jesus is using here, talking about the coming of the kingdom, is the coming of the judgment of God, which is connected with this idea of fire. But as we saw in Isaiah 65 and 66, as we'll see, Peter's going to use the language not only of Noah, but also of fire. It, it's less of an idea here with Jesus, back with Isaiah, even with Peter. It's less of an idea of destruction and more the idea of cleansing, this giving birth to something new, particularly new heavens and a new earth, the way that things were supposed to be. Uh, I'm going to leave that there because we've got a lot more to say about that when we get to looking at what Peter has to say about the subject. What I wanted us to yeah. see is simply Jesus is using the same language. It's language in Genesis. It's language in prophets such as Isaiah. Jesus is going to use this language. Paul, Peter, John. We're going to see the same imagery over and over and over again. And so this just shows it's it's not just a Paul thing or an Isaiah thing. or it, It's an everybody thing, uh, including yeah. Yeah. a Jesus thing, which, yep. I don't know, Jesus is pretty important. So I think that's a... That's why we give him the red letters. Pretty important thing. That's stuff that matters that it, most. <laughs> Jesus said it, so... Uh, <laughs> So this is all forming our base, as we said towards the beginning, right? Foundation. We're seeing a common thread, a theme that's being followed from beginning to end. And so that's that's what we're trying to, to lay out with all of this. Um, really quickly here at the end, um, what are some, some possible contradictions here that might that somebody might be able to go, well, hold on, you know, before <laughs> before you do this, uh, here are some thoughts that you have to consider. 
what are what are a couple of those things that we need to address there? Right. Well, we, we, when you think about in the synoptic gospels, contradictions. I have some other things to say when we talk about John. Uh, but sure, sure. when when we start talking about this, some passages in the synoptics that may come to your mind. Uh, or you may be thinking, well, how does what you're saying fit into what Jesus says here or there? there? There's two things that prominently come to my mind, at least. Maybe there's others. For those of you listening, feel free to send them to us. But one is Jesus' statement of heaven and earth passing away, which shows up in all three of the synoptics. Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Um, Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Um, and what I would say to that, it, I, I don't want to make it too simple, but that the, the idea of heaven and earth passing away doesn't have to mean the complete and total destruction, something completely new, but simply as this way of things, as we look forward to new heavens and new earth. Right, the idea of new heavens and a new earth is that there's a current heaven and earth, and they're not like God desires them to be, because they're not the same place. The earth is broken. The way things are is broken. We desire for them to be one. We desire something new, and I think that's the idea that Jesus is is getting behind. That the the way things are are going to pass away. His words are not. His words, his teaching, his work is what? It's the gra- It's the bedrock of the story of God. It's how things are all made new. So, yeah, his words aren't going to go away because, in a way, it's through his words that the new heavens and new earth are born, to use that birthing language. Um, and so it's Jesus, his words, his actions that are bringing about the fullness of the kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, as we wait for things as they are to pass away. Um, uh, it, it's, again, interesting. That's language that we see in Isaiah 2, the idea of, of passing away. The, the former things will not be remembered yeah. or come to mind, Isaiah said. These old things are going to pass away because there's something new coming. Uh, and that seems to be, at least in my opinion, what Jesus is saying. And again, it's interesting that he's using similar language to Isaiah. Again, maybe even calling us back to think about his words as they connect with what Isaiah says. Um, yeah. And the other one that came to my mind, Matthew 10, 28, uh, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I mentioned that one because we're talking about a physical nature uh, to heaven. Uh, the new creation is built upon some kind of physicality to heaven. And maybe at some point we'll talk about how that works because it's similar but different. I like to tell people when we think of physicality, we think of limitations, of disease, of decay, it's hard for us to imagine a physicality without those limitations, but I think that's the idea of heaven. You've got this physicality idea, our bodies being resurrected, creation being made new, where they no longer act like what we typically think of as physical. Um, 
but th- but but this is a passage that that bothers some people when we start to think about a physical nature uh, to heaven or the uh, kingdom because uh, Jesus here uh, talks about the, the destruction of the the body. Uh, the soul is kind of left over the idea of, yeah, you can kill the body, but you've got a soul, you've got a true self that continues to live on. Uh, we're actually going to talk about that more when we get to Paul, because um, yeah. Paul uses more of that kind of, of language. Um, but I don't think that neg- uh, this statement negates the physicality of heaven, because Jesus says, um, yeah, human beings can kill your body but you're still alive. There's still a part of you that lives on even without a body. Uh, we've got to fit Jesus' statements on resurrection and the New Sta- Testament statements on resurrection in that. In that I think we're rating. Yes, human beings can kill our body. Yes, we have something that lives on. That soul that lives on, though, is waiting for the resurrection of the body to be united with the body. That's the whole resurrection idea uh, that we have to fit into our theology uh, in some way, the resurrection of our bodies. But it's interesting that Jesus follows up and says, don't feel, don't fear human beings who can kill the body but can't fear the soul, but in essence, fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus even brings a physicality to hell there, that it's both body and soul that's thrown in, not just soul. Sure. Which again, yeah, connects us with ideas of resurrection ideas of physicality in the afterlife, Jesus even makes that connection there. So I think if anything, this actually supports some kind of physicality in heaven uh, because Jesus puts it in hell too. God destroys both body and soul in hell, not just the soul, but both. It's a more full view of the human being, uh, that we're not just a soul or we're not just a mind or we're not just a body, but we're a combination of all. And we wait for the redemption of all. And in this case, those who aren't a part of the kingdom, the punishment of all, the entire human being. Uh, Spencer said it before he started that last point about possible contradictions that uh, you may think of others or you may have some comments to make on these. Uh, and we want to invite you to do that at uh, our Facebook page for Thinking Theologically or uh, our email at strongchurchministries at gmail.com uh, or Twitter as well uh, for Spencer. Uh, with any other things you want to throw out, because th- there may be more stuff. For a, for a lot of you, this is going to be new territory and topic of discussion and lots of new ideas and things like that. Um, we thought this was going to be a shorter episode. <laughs> and it's quite long. It's shorter than it could so have been. There's so much to say. That's true. Uh, there's so much to say about uh, all of these different things, but... Uh, Some of these questions may be answered as we go throughout. Uh, I believe next week we won't be getting into Paul's uh, comments about New Heaven yet, but we will because we need to take a pause and understand Paul a little bit. I believe that's what we're doing uh, next week uh, or in our, our next episode, rather. Uh, but we want to encourage you to, to stick with us, to continue to learn these things um, with us, to discuss them with us. We're perfectly fine with disagreement. You know, just let us know where do you disagree by sending us a message. Don't uh, post about us in some group about being heretics or whatever, or do that. But that's if you can square that with uh, being a part of the kingdom, whatever you believe the kingdom is, then that's on you, I suppose. But 
<laughs> I embrace the uh, label of of heretic. Some of the best teachers Great. were denoted as heretics in their time. I, I've right before we started this, I was reading about Galileo and. There've also been some bad ones. Cosmology rightly labeled heretics as well. So I don't know how. Yeah, but I don't know that I want to proudly wear it. But I'm more than happy to uh, discuss anything uh, at any point. So we're not trying to get you to agree with everything we think. We're trying to get you to think theologically, and that's the approach that we are taking to this. And hope that you're enjoying these episodes. And we've we've got a lot more to come, both uh, recorded and and written. So be sure to check out thinkingtheologically.org so you can see all that stuff as it comes out. Uh, and keep coming back to these. And if you like these, uh, share them with other people uh, so we can continue to grow in that way. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. We look forward to the next one. See you then.